right. Well, welcome to LifePoint. How's everybody doing this morning? Oh, I think we can do a little bit better than that. <laughs> Let me give you a second chance, all right? How's everybody doing this morning? All right, that's much better. Good, good job. Good deal, man. If you're uh, tuning in for the first time or joining us, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint, and we are thrilled that you've joined us today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 34. We're in the middle of a series called The Life of Moses, The Life of Moses. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus 34, we're going to look at verses 6 through 7. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Also, at the end of our message, we're going to have communion today. And if you would want to have, if you're following us online, you want to have communion with us, uh, we want to encourage you to just get uh, some crackers, cranberry juice, apple juice, and if you're not ready, uh, you can hit the pause button and just come back to it in a minute. We try to put it on social media, but we understand that not everybody may have seen the post, um, but we will have communion towards the end of the message. So Exodus 34 Verses 6 through 7, okay, that's where you're going this morning. The Bible has been written by many, many, many authors over a period of hundreds of years. And one way in which he has stayed connected, like from one generation to the next, is one unified story is through repetition. All right, let, let, me, let me say that again. The Bible has been written by many, many, many authors throughout hundreds of years in one way in which it has stayed connected like from one generation to the next as one story when you look at it it's a lot lots of different authors lots of different letters and books in one way in which it has stayed connected from one to the next from one generation to the next from one letter to the next is through repetition so when you look at all of these authors biblical authors they actually quote themselves. They requote each other, okay, throughout time. And uh, an example is the Gospels, for example. You have four Gospels, but it's really one story. And it's four different authors, but it's just the story of Jesus. And what it's doing is it's just giving you a little bit of a different angle. And so when you read the Gospels, sometimes you'll read a verse, and you actually re recognize that it's actually one of the authors is quoting somebody else. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking? Today, the verses that we're going to look at in Exodus 34 are like the two most quoted or requoted verses in all of the Hebrew Bible. So when you look at, when you look at these two verses that we're going to read, they, they appear in the Old Testament more than any other. So you have different authors quoting Exodus 34 more than any other verse in the Bible. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is sort of like the, the John 3, 16 of ancient Israel. You know how John 3, 16, like it's a very, like in our world, like everybody knows that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Okay, so for us, John 3, 16, everybody knows it. For them, for the Hebrew people in that day and age, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 is a verse that like everybody knew it. Now, let me give you a little bit of context before, before we read it. So, so God has given Moses the Ten Commandments for the second time. I don't know if you know this, but the first time he went up to the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments. He comes down and he notices that the people, they form this idol. It's a golden calf. And they, they're worshiping this, this calf, and Mo, this golden calf. And Moses gets upset 
And he's coming down from the mountain with the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he breaks them. All right? So you fast forward to Exodus 34, and so here is God giving Moses the tablets for the second time. And this, the thing that he's doing is he's also not just giving him the Ten Commandments, but he's also describing himself. So God is giving Moses a description of who he is. All right? So with that said, let's look at it. Verse 6. Two most quoted verses in all of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It says this. And he, that's God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. We looked at this word a couple of weeks ago. This is the word Yahweh. This most holy name for God. If you want to go back and listen to the message, I kind of spent a little bit of time on that. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's describing himself to Moses, okay? Verse 7. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation now what i want us to do is i want us to look at the tension there's a little bit of tension between verse 6 in verse 7, I want us to look at the tension between, between these two, two verses. Like verse 6, like, man, like we all love it, right? It's a description of, of a very loving, very gracious, caring God. And so like most of us, we, we, we read verse 6, and it's like, yeah, I, I, it makes sense. Like I understand why it's the most quoted verse in all of Scripture. Like who wouldn't want to, like he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he is abounding with loyal love, it says. Those are all attributes that you would want in a friend. You want to have them for yourself. Like, yeah, I'll give me some more, more of that. No wonder that, that they're the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. It reinforces that God loves thousands and He forgives people's iniquities and transgressions and sins. Like, yep, thumbs up. Like, I'm all about verse 6. And then, all of a sudden, you get to verse 7. And it's like a total change. All of a sudden, you get to, to, to verse 7 and it just takes a turn. And it ends with a vindictive sort of like a, a vindictive picture of God like he's describing himself saying like he wants to punish kids for the sins of their parents what like that just, just doesn't doesn't compute with the God that I know from the Bible right and it seems to me like what you have is to and I want to I want to do this as a, a little bit of an object lesson to kind of help the message be memorable. It seems like you have some sort of tension. In fact, let me get let me. Would you girls come up here? They already know that I'm calling them, so don't don't worry about them. You guys give them a hand. Thank you, Natalie and Marisa. You guys get up here, and what I want you guys to know, you've already been through this, so you know what you're, you're, you're doing. You're doing a whole lot better now than the first one. What I want you to do is I want you to hold a little bit of tension, okay? A little bit more than that. A little bit more than that. A little bit more than I'm just joking. Be careful. Do not, don't let go, all right? This is not going to, you're going to let go of it a little bit, all right? So what you have in verse, between verse 6 and 7 is a, a tension, okay? On the one hand, you have... Uh, God dis describing himself to Moses, Moses and he's saying, 
I am a loving God. I'm a patient God. I, you know, like, I am a graceful, I, I show mercy. And then on the other hand, it seems like he's angry. And you read verse 7, and it looks like, man, like, he wants to take it out on, like, the children, like, because of the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. So do you see that? Do you see the tension? So let me kind of give you a heads up. Today, it's going to be a little bit more of a, a little bit heavy on theology, okay? But what I want you to know is that this message is extremely practical. So a little bit more heavy on theology, but if you learn to manage the tension, the way that God manages the tension between God's mercy, God's grace, and His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, you will be a better parent. I believe with all of my heart, if you learn to manage that tension, you will know how to discipline your kids when they do something wrong, and you'll know how to deal with, like, at times you'll have to bring the heat. At times you need to show grace. If you learn to manage the tension the way that God manages the tension, we're going to look at it in Scripture in a minute. If you learn to manage the tension the way that He does, I, I believe that if you're a leader and you lead people, you, you'll be a better boss at work. I think there are times when you have to get in people's faces and be like hey look this can't happen and there's other times when you need to spend time with them and love them i think you relationally with your spouse or people that you work with you will be a better human being if you can manage the tension okay the way that god does it all right give it up for these girls great job thank you so much so the tension is real now the question that i have is this question that I have is are these tensions that God feels within himself and then if he does then like how does God deal with people when I when we make a mistake and like when we screw up right like are these is this a tension that like God's deal like if he feels within himself and then if he if he feels it then how does he deal with me when I, when I screw up, okay? Um, just, just as you're taking notes today, a lot of our, the research notes for, for the message today, they actually came from a podcast that I heard a couple of months ago, and I don't know if we put it, yeah, thank you guys, appreciate you. Um, so the Bible Project, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Bible Projects, those guys are amazing, I really encourage you to listen, I've shown you some of their videos, but if you want to understand the Bible, at, like in a deeper way, download their podcast, the message today, I heard this podcast probably, I don't know, several weeks ago, before I even knew I was going to be teaching on the life of Moses, and so a lot of the notes for today, and we're not going to be able to cover everything that I wish we could, but if you want more, and if you want to dig in a little bit deeper, go and, and um, Google the most quoted verse uh, in the Bible. It's a great podcast, and they get into it a little bit more. So uh, what I want to do as we get started is I want to address the elephant in the room, which is verse 7, right? Verse 6, we kind of get. Verse 7 is the one that's like, ooh, I don't know. Like, what's, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Uh, so let, let me read it. It says, God will not clear the, the guilty, excuse me, God will not clear the guilty, he will visit the iniquity or the sin of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And it ends with that. Like God's describing himself to Moses and that's how he ends. 
Which to me, I'm reading that verse and I'm like, whoa. Like, so I guess God is vengeful after all. Like, I mean, what's the deal with punishing the grandkids? And and then also, like, it's the last thing that he says when he's describing himself. So I'm thinking, if you if you are if you're a writer, if you've written a report um, or an article before, a message, like your last paragraph, that's usually the most important words right like you leave like the last thing that you say is like the thing that you want your readers to walk away with like it's it's the thing that like here it is this is the most this is what's most valuable so you like your conclusion your last paragraph that's like this is it go go home with this and so he closes with in verse seven with this picture of of god being angry and so if you're like me i'm like okay the last thought here is about visiting sin generationally which is kind of intense if you ask me begins with all the goodies right like i like the beginning i'll take the love is god is love and patient for he forgives but then all of a sudden it's just you know it's like a gut like a punch in the gut and it 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 ends with this whole idea of like he's going to punish your family and it's almost like god is saying i love you i love you i'll forgive you i'm being patient but your kids will be punished like what it doesn't doesn't compute and then if you read the verse it says the third and fourth generation i'm kind of analytical so i'm i'm thinking what about the the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and so on how come he's it's almost like and he mentions children and it's like he's holding a grudge and like and then he kind of lets forgets or something and so i'm thinking like why my, why just the third and the fourth generation and so lots of questions right and let's get let's get into it First point, if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you. It'll help you remember the message a little bit better. First point is this. This, the Exodus 34, is the first character description of God in the Bible. So let's say that you're, you're searching, and you, you're reading the Bible, and you're like, I want to know who God is. I want to know what God is like. And you're reading your Bible, and you're like, man, I'm just like, I just really want to know what is he like, who is he, and you come across the first description, the first character description of God. This is what you would find. Exodus 34. And so if you want to understand your God, you better know how to explain these verses. Okay? Does that make sense? Like, does that, does that, do you understand the importance of knowing? Like if you really want to know God, well, let's look at the first description. It's Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. All right, it talks, I, can, I get 6, but verse 7, I, quite, I don't quite get it. Well, let's, let's get into it, okay? So first point is first um, character and description of God in the Bible. So first three words, mercy, compassion, patience, like I understand them. Um, even justice, I can understand justice a little bit. It's hard when he begins to mention children, because it's like, man, why are you? What do you have to pick on the children? They didn't do anything. It just doesn't seem fair. Now there is some Christian circles, some Christian traditions, who've interpreted these verses with this whole idea of a generational curse. Have you ever heard of those terms like that? Anybody? Generational curse okay and so they they sort of interpret this as like there's some sort of divine judgment that lingers on your family if somebody in your family has some done something wrong or there's some sin in the in the past like somehow there's this divine judgment that lingers in your family and like from from generation to generation so when bad things happen it's because of what they did 
In fact, I heard this week, I, I was talking to somebody, and it was those two words were brought up, generational curse. You know, and it's like, well, I'm going to be teaching about that. It's interesting that you meant, for me, it was like God saying, yep, this is a message that, that you've got to communicate. But I've even heard it taught. I've heard preachers who say, you know, the reason why you're going through what you're going through is because of a generational curse. So there's a lot of questions about this verse. There's a lot of teaching. It is not only the most quoted, requoted verse in Scripture in the Hebrew Bible, but I believe it's one of the most misinterpreted. Lots of questions. So what I want to do today for the next 18 and a half minutes that we have is I want us to look at what Scripture says. All right, I'll give you my opinion. If I do, like, I'll tell you, hey, this is my opinion. But I want, I want you to, like, take the authority of God's word, and I want, I want us to look, like, the, let's, go, let's go to Scripture and see what the Bible says, okay? So here's the second point. Let's put it up on the screen. Here's the second point. So number one, this is the first character description of the Bible. Number two, these verses are the most quoted verses in the Old Testament. And that's really good for us because... At least 27 times this is requoted. And so what that allows us to do is it allows us to look at what the biblical authors, how they're interpreting the verses. Does that make sense? So the fact that it's repeated so much, at least part of it, like the whole thing or at least part of it, it allows us to know, okay, all right, 27 times plus okay it's requoted in the hebrew bible let's figure out what these authors let's figure out how they interpreted the verse and figure out if we can come up with a consensus okay so for example uh exodus 34 it's quoted in numbers it is quoted in deuteronomy it's quoted in um in jonah jonah chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 so it's quoted all over scripture the first time is in numbers numbers chapter 14 and it is Moses. And it makes sense because God gives a description of himself to Moses. So it makes sense that the first person that's going to be quoting the verses is actually Moses. Okay, let me kind of tell you a little bit of the behind the scenes. The Israelites, they made it through the desert and they're about to enter the promised land. They send 12 spies into the promised land to investigate, to figure out, okay, what are we getting into? All right, 10 of them, I call them the rebel spies, 10 come back and give a report to the people. And they say, the land, it's just like God said, it's, it's beautiful. The, I mean, they have you know, huge grapes and the cities are incredible. And like, this is gonna be an amazing thing. But then they say, but they also have giants. And their fear overwhelmed them. And they tell the people, we don't think that we can go into, into this land. And essentially what they're saying is we don't believe that Yahweh can rescue us from these giants. Essentially that's what they're saying. And there's two who say, no, we've seen the hand of God. We've seen what he's capable of doing. Like he's rescued us from some other giant, Pharaoh, remember the story? But the ten, the people listen to the ten more than the two, and there's this huge riot. They get upset, and they want to go back to Egypt. They want to get rid of Moses. They want to appoint a new leader. And it's like, man, it's just a big, big chaos. And God, is, gets, he gets tired of them. And God says, you know what? I'm done with these people. 
And he tells Moses, he says, I'm done. I'm going to eliminate, I'm going to destroy the people because I've shown them the power of my hand. Time, year after year after year, they've seen, it's not like they haven't seen who I am. They've seen it, they have experienced it. And, and, like, and they're still complaining. And they're still uh, doubting my power. And so God has a conversation with Moses. And Moses, watch what Moses says to God. Moses pleads for the people. He basically says, don't, don't do it, God. And watch this. Moses quotes Exodus. So Numbers 14, 17, all right? So Moses responds to God, and he says this. Now, and now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, all right? So Moses is about to quote what God told him back in Exodus. You guys tracking? And here it is. The Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity, here it is, of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And then he adds a little line to his prayer. He says, please pardon the iniquity of the people According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven these people, watch this, don't miss it, from Egypt until now. Now, so Moses, here's what he's doing. He, he quotes Exodus, and then like verse 6, which is the, the one that we all love, right? The one that's all about the good side of God, like the love and God is patient and all of that. He like summarizes verse 6, and he just gives us a couple of words. But then he gives us a whole verse 7. He's re-quoting Exodus. And Moses says, like, here's a whole verse 7. But here's what I want you to get. Don't miss it, okay? Don't miss it. His conclusion, Moses' takeaway, is, so forgive the people. God, this is who you say you are. He quotes, verse, he summarizes verse 6. He gives verse 7 in, like, the whole thing. But his conclusion is not, oh, we're doomed. It's over. The end. No, Moses' conclusion is, so forgive them. They've been unfaithful since Egypt. They've doubted you since Egypt. In fact, if you, if you, if you, um, if you look at the whole book of Numbers, seven times they rebel. If you read the whole book of Numbers, okay, this is a fourth rebellion. So this is not the first time that Moses is interceding for the people. He's like, God, be patient a little bit longer. Hang in there a little bit longer. And, and so it's not the first time. God looks at them and is like, I'm done. I'm done with these people. And Moses is like, no, let me remind you of who you said you are. And here's, here's a little bit of insight. Here's a little bit of a nugget of truth. Moses does not see the justice of God and the mercy of God to be he doesn't see it as a contradiction. He sees it as a, as a tension to manage. And Moses knows somehow, intuitively, he knows that if he, imagine if I had a, a scale right here. Moses somehow knows if I press on God's side of, on the mercy side of the scale, God will listen. And so he, he looks at, God looks at the people, they're right there, about to cross into the promised land. God has shown them the power of his might, and they're like, no, no, we can't do it. Let, they let fear 
conquer them. They get into a mess. There's chaos all over the land. We want a new leader. We need to go back to Egypt. God's like, I'm done with these people. Moses says, no, let me remind you of who you are. You told me back in Exodus, and he quotes Exodus. He quotes verse 6, kind of summarizes it. Verse 7 gives him the whole, the whole spiel. But his conclusion, his takeaway is, if I press on the mercy side of God, he will listen. He yields. Now think about it with me. Let's put it on the screen. This question. Ask yourself, is there ever a time when someone intercedes or asks God for something and he does not respond with compassion, mercy, or loving kindness? Is there anywhere in the Bible where you see someone coming before God and praying for a group of people or praying for themselves and God does not respond with compassion, mercy, or loving kindness. Think with me. Is there anywhere in the Bible, because I was thinking about this this whole week, there's only one place, in fact, I heard it when I listened to the podcast, that where God tells Jeremiah, he says, don't pray for the people. Don't intercede on their behalf. And the idea, the logic behind there is that when a man of God or when the woman of God intercedes on, on behalf of somebody else, God yields and he listens. And so he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them. <laughs> because every time in Scripture, when someone asks for something or for someone else, Every time God responds with compassion, with loving kindness. And so you press on mercy, it tips the scales every time. And I dare you, show me a passage of scripture where, where someone asked and God did not respond with loving kindness, compassion, all that. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Remember Sodom and, and Gomorrah? Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? So it was a very wicked group of people. Um, Pervert it. I couldn't even say some of the things that they would do in that culture. Their sexual sin. It was just just horrible place. And um, God, same thing. It's like, man, I'm going to start over. I'm going to get rid of these people. And Abraham, this time, comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, he says, and by, by the way, if you want the if you want the reference, I'm not going to put all the verses on the screen, but if you want the reference, Genesis 18:23 through 33 that's the reference genesis 18 A abraham approaches god and says will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked suppose you find 50 people that are living there in this city will you sweep the city like will you get rid of it and not spare it for their sake for the righteous people's sake surely you wouldn't do such a thing destroying the righteous along with the wicked why would you be treating the the righteous and the wicked the same way it's, it goes against your nature so abraham abraham is having a conversation with god and it's like this is not who you are Similar to the conversation that Moses was having, right? And God's like, if there's 50 people now, I'm not going to get rid of it. And then I love what Abraham says. He's like, okay, since I've already opened up my mouth, since I've begun, it says, and I'm reading from the, the New Living Translation, let me speak a little bit further, Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. I love, I love how he puts himself in the right position. So he's like, all right, Lord, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know who I am. All right, I'm just dust and ashes, so don't kill me. Don't, don't take it out on me, but let me just ask you, what if there's only 45 righteous people? Will you get rid of the city if we're only missing like five? Come on, Lord. And God's like, nope, 45 people? I won't get rid of it. And he pushes a little bit more. 
And in the translation that I'm reading, it says, Then Abraham pressed, I love that, pressed his request further. Suppose there's only 40. And God's like, I'm not going to get rid of it. There's 40 righteous people. Please don't angry. Don't be angry at me, Lord. He pleaded. Suppose there is 30. It's like, I won't get rid of it if there's, if there's 30. He says, since I have dared to speak to the Lord, suppose there is 20. I won't get rid of it if there's 20. Lord, please don't be angry. This is the last time I'll, I'll ask. What if there is 10? And he's like, no, I won't get rid of it. And it kind of leads to our third point, right? It's the same thing that Moses understood. Let's put it on the screen. When you press on God's mercy, he what? Help me out, church. He? Say it. When you press on God's mercy, he what? Listens. He listens. He yields. So in a few moments, we're, we're going to have communion. And here's what I encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to press, lean in onto his side of mercy. We all need God's mercy. The truth is, like none of us want true justice. We all know the baggage that we have. And so I want to encourage you, communion it's a great time to say, okay, Lord, I need you. Here's, here's where I'm at. Here's where my lack of faith is. Here's where my issues are. And so, God, would you please help me? All right, let me do one, one, more, um, one more verse, and then we'll, if I had time, I would take you to Jonah, but we don't have time. So if you want on your own, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it's another moment where Exodus is quoted. But I just want to give you one last reference, okay? And this is in Deuteronomy 5, 8. Deuteronomy 5, 8. Okay, so um, kind of bring the story, so kind of bring you up to speed. So remember the, the, the 10 spies that created that chaos and all of that I just told you about? Okay, so the Israelites are still there, okay? It's a brand new generation of people. Because when the Israelites, when the 10 spies come back and it's like, oh, we can't, we can't go in, and the people, you know, everything goes into a riot. Do you know what God does? He says, he says, okay, you don't want to go into the promised land? That's fine. I'm not going to push it on you, but you won't get to see it. You, won't, you will die in the wilderness. That's what God says. Your kids, they'll, they'll go in. The, the, they'll, the new generation, they'll go into the promised land, but you didn't believe. You didn't believe that I was powerful enough. And so right now, Deuteronomy, you have a brand new generation, okay, of, of people. And this, this group of people, they've, they're experiencing God in a new way. And so God says to them, he gives them the Ten Commandments, which is the verses that we're going to read, and then we quote from Exodus, okay? And so God, listen to what it says, all right? So Ten Commandments, and he's going to tell them once again, here, here's this is who I am. Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, God says, Okay, boys and girls, you've heard these before. Okay, but you're, you know, it's a new generation. So let me just remind you, just in case, I know how my people are. You forget very easily. So before you go into the promised land, let me tell you a little bit about the Ten Commandments. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, and one last thing, let me tell you who I am. Okay, and he's quoting, he's quoting from Exodus, okay? 
He says, I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. And he quotes, here it is, verse 9. Visiting the iniquity, don't miss it, folks. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, watch this, to the third and fourth generation, watch this, of those who hate me. Verse 10. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Moses, why didn't you care to tell me that back in Exodus chapter 34? I mean, I wish you would have, you kind of cut it short. You only told me like half of, of the description. And now you are in Deuteronomy and God is saying, yes, yes, yes. I will visit the iniquity of the father's sins on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Let's back up one slide, please. Of those who what? Who hate me. But I will also show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so, just because your mom or your dad did something bad does not mean that you have to pay for their sin or you have to be punished or there's some sort of divine, you know, vindictive punishment on you. Just because your grandparents maybe they were addicted to something does not mean that you have to be addicted to that. You can break that cycle. You can break the cycle of addiction, of abuse, of sexual sin, of laziness, of cheating, corruption. You don't have to live their way. And this leads to our third point. But your behavior, and I wish... I almost used the word faith. Your faith, your faith, not your parents' faith, not your grandparents' faith. Your faith is crucial to how God responds. Let me read it again. I am the Lord your God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but also showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God will not show steadfast love. Let me say it again. God will show steadfast love to thousands upon thousands, but no generation will be treated unfairly. No, no generation gets a free pass. All of a sudden, oh, you get a free pass because of your parents. Or you get treated unfairly because of your parents or your grandparents. Your own, their own behavior matters to the way that God responds to us. Your behavior matters to how you respond to God. And that, my friends, I believe with all of my heart, that is the implication of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So we're going to transition into a time of of meditation a time of reflection i guess and so with head bowed and eyes closed um i just want to ask you our worship team is going to come out just want to ask you a couple of questions how will you deal with your behavior it's your faith it's your sin how will you will you press on his mercy or will you ignore it will you complain about it and also, like when you're dealing with people at work or at home with your kids, how will you deal with the tension between grace and love, justice and fairness? And so today, as we take communion, 
I recognize some of you may be online or here for the first time. You don't, you may not know why we do this. Let me kind of explain it quickly. Communion, we're told in God's word that we should remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so this is, I mean, call it a symbol, call it a tradition, call it an ordinance, an object lesson, you call it whatever you want. But God knows that we forget very quickly. And so he said, you know, there's a little practice that I want you to do. So you, so you're intentional and you remember me. And so we call it communion. Some people call it Lord's Supper. And he knew that, like, we needed to anchor ourselves to something to remember the sacrifice of Christ on the, on the cross. And so you don't have to participate. You're more than welcome to, but you don't feel like, don't feel a pressure to do it. If you're going to participate at home, you can grab maybe the bread or the crackers or whatever you found and cup, juice, whatever you found. And what I want to do for the next few minutes as we close our service is I want to create a little bit of space for you to talk to God. Just be, just a little bit of space, maybe a little bit of time of reflection. We don't do this as often as I wish we would we could. And then I'm going to lead you through a prayer. At the end of the prayer, we'll have communion together, okay? Whether you're at home or you're here in the, in the room. But will you just take a minute? By the way, if you've never seen, if you're in the room, if you've never seen these little cups, it's got two layers. Go ahead and, I'm doing this with you. Go ahead and peel the top layer, and it reveals the little wafer. And then go ahead and do, just so we can be ready at the end of the prayer, go ahead and peel the second layer. The second layer kind of reveals the, the juice. So go ahead and do that. Two layers. The top one is wafer. The next one is the juice. And so, would you just take a moment just to ask yourself, Lord, how am I to deal with my, my sin, my behavior? Lord, how am I, like, what am I supposed to, did, did I deal with that situation at work? Or did I deal with that situation with my spouse? Or did I handle the tension the way you would have? Because God, you've shown me in your word. When we press on God's mercy, you listen every time. You did it with Abraham. You did it with Moses. And it, like if we were to study the, the rest of the 27 verses that Exodus is requoted, we see it time and time again. Moses' conclusion is not like, oh, we're doomed, it's the end. No, it was, forgive, Lord, this is what you've done. You've done it time and time again from Egypt until now, and you're still going to do it. So God, just forgive. So when you press on God's mercy, he listens. But your behavior matters. It's your faith. It's your... So you can make nothing out of this moment, or you can make everything out of this moment. It's crucial. It's crucial to how God responds. So this is your time. Lord, we bow before you and in humility we ask, would you examine our hearts? God, would you show us anything that's not pleasing to you, Lord? Reveal any secret pride or any unconfessed sin. 
anything that's hindering us from our relationship with you. God, I say this to him. Lord, I know I'm your child. I've received you in my heart, God. I've accepted you. I've accepted your death as a penalty for my sin. God, you pay the price. Your death on the cross cover me. So, Lord, I take this little cracker or bread or whatever I have in my little my hand, God, and I just, it's a picture of your body that was broken for me. God, I celebrate your name today, and I so want to imitate your faithfulness. I cannot imagine the agonizing suffering on the cross. I just cannot picture it. Lord, and thank you for your extravagant love and your unmerited favor, God. Your death gave me life, abundant life here, life here on earth, not just eternal life, God, but... Lord, just as you instructed your disciples, God, I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm going to remember. And as I take this little cracker, this bread, God, I, I remember that your body was broken. And God, the, I recognize that your, your blood was poured out from a splintered cross. You were the supreme sacrifice. For all of my sin, past, present, future, God, your, your blood was, was shed for me, Lord. Your body was broken so that I can be set free from the, the power and the penalty of sin. So, God, thank you that you did not stay dead, but you came back from the dead and you conquered death. Your pain was my gain, Lord. And today I celebrate you. I remember you. You're the gift of life to me. So God, I recommit my life to you. My heart, my thoughts, my everything, fill me up with your power, God, the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, as, as we leave this place or wherever we go, help us to hold on to this fresh word that you're a merciful God, that there is justice, God. But when we lean on mercy, You always yield. You always listen. We confess to you. We agree with you. And we thank you. We celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen. In remembrance of him. Would you please stand?